Hey everyone, and welcome to Small Biz Gone Viral. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau. Each episode, we interview a small business owner about the impact COVID-19 is having on their business, and, of course, the humans who run it. Today's guest is my local baker, the owner of the nationally renowned Wayfarer Bread, Crystal White. She'll share some of the tough decisions she's had to make over the last year, including prioritizing the health of her staff over profits by choosing to close her doors for weeks during the lucrative holiday season amidst a surge in COVID cases. If you can't have her sourdough, then at least you can enjoy hearing all about it. Oh, but first, our fun fact. Yay! Today's fun fact is, surprise, not very fun at all. For the first time ever, the USA fell out of the top 10 most innovative economies in the world. According to Bloomberg, South Korea was ranked first, followed by Singapore, Switzerland, Germany, Sweden, Denmark, Israel, Finland, Netherlands, Austria, and then the US. For historical context, let's do our recurring segment, Facts and Figures. First, as a fading sports fan, I would be remiss to not mention that Tom Brady won his seventh Super Bowl last night. It will forever be remembered as the COVID season, and fingers crossed, the only one of its kind as the vaccine rollout and ramp up continues. Yesterday, the U.S. administered roughly 2 million vaccines, raising the daily average above 1.4 million. 123,000 people are still returning positive cases each and every day, which is three times higher than it was in the summer, but only half of what it was four weeks ago in the peak of the post-Christmas surge. So while the short term still doesn't look good, the light at the end of the tunnel is getting brighter. That bright light does seem to correlate with both the stock market at record highs and total unemployment declining from 6.7 to 6.3% in January. The good news is not coming fast enough, and for a lot of families, unfortunately, it will come too late. But at least we as a country are finally trending in the right direction. My guest today is Crystal White. Growing up in Northern California, dreaming of having a bakery by the beach, Crystal got her first job in a bakery when she was just 15. After honing her skills for the last 20 years in bakeries up and down the state, she finally took the plunge and chose San Diego as the place to open her very own long-dreamt-of bakery. Just a few years in, Wayfarer Bread has won national acclaim and an extremely loyal following. Next time you were in San Diego, grab a loaf of her sourdough, but first enjoy this interview, which I realize is long, but I promise is worth it because Crystal is amazing and gives so much valuable insight into the everyday grind of an entrepreneur and into some of the impossibly tough decisions she's faced in the pandemic. Crystal, thanks so much for being here. Of course, I'm happy to be here. So this show was basically designed as like an audio shoulder for small business owners to cry on by relating to other small business owners who are having shared experiences. Uh, some guests through, you know, they're through COVID, they have benefited others and most have seen their businesses, at least at some point hit kind of a, a rock bottom low. Your story has a bit of both, basically like a, a roller coaster with kind of some some pretty high highs of community support and and you know pivots and adjustments, and then also some some pretty big lows or low lows. Uh, let's start though at the beginning 
with your bread baking superhero origin story. And uh, just tell us how, how did you first start into the world of baking? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I couldn't tell you how I decided I wanted to be a baker, but my 11 year old brain was honed in on it for some reason. And I would walk around telling people, I want to own a bakery by the beach. Cause I really like the beach and probably cause I really liked baked goods. <laughs> and that's how kids put together their, like, what are you going to be when you grow up answer? Um, but the weird thing is I never changed my mind. Uh, I, I got really obsessed with baking books when I was a kid, just looking at the pictures. And then um, right about the time I turned 12, we moved to Napa, which was a probably really good idea for the future of my career because suddenly I was immersed in this beautiful place that was just obsessed with hospitality and food and the finer things in life. <laughs> and uh, that definitely fueled the fire. And uh, yeah, as I got older, I was like, okay, I'm 15, I'm 16, I can finally get a job. I'm gonna go work at a bakery. Of course I'm gonna go work at a bakery. And they wouldn't let me in the kitchen at first. So I would just work the front counter for the first year, um, which has proven very helpful in the long run because I spend a lot of time <laughs> dealing with customers now <laughs> and probably more time doing that than baking. Uh, and yeah, and then I just stuck with it. Um, I moved from the front counter into the kitchen. Uh, I couldn't get into the kitchen without an unpaid internship, which I always feel like is important to note because everyone's like, how do I get started in baking? And I'm like, you work for free, unfortunately. Really? <laughs> I had no idea that, that baking was one of those industries that you, that you had to do it for free. Oh, well, it's a, it's a big ask. You know, people, I think it's a very transferable skill in most people's minds. Like, oh, I bake at home so I can bake professionally. But there's so many other factors that go into baking professionally, like asking a completely untrained kitchen person to come into my kitchen. It's a big ask. It's scary. There's people running around really fast. They're holding very sharp objects. There's a whole different kitchen code to things like how to, how to talk, how to hold yourself, how to behave so that you don't get hurt and you're not in the way and you don't slow things down. And that's something you learn very slowly over many years. So if you want to get a head start, get your foot in the door asking to work for free for a short period of time and just chop vegetables in the corner is a really good way to get started. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Okay. So got a little off topic. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, not at all. This is, I mean, this is part of this podcast is about, you know, kind of peeling back the curtain and, and, and learning and learning about the, the unknowns, the, the, the things that you would never know about a business unless yeah. you get to talk to the, to the owner themselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So thank you for sharing yeah. that. So of course. Yeah. <laughs> so growing up, you know, you're, you're at that, that bakery for the first couple of years. When, what about like after high school? So after high school, my parents were like, we support your baking goals, but we're going to need you to get a real college degree too, just in case you change your mind. <laughs> and so I went to San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly and got a business degree because I knew I wanted to own a business and I wanted to own a bakery and uh, I was really bored by the business classes. So I got a minor in nutrition so I could still keep a toe in the culinary world. And the whole time I worked in bakeries um, to support myself too. So my schedule was pretty crazy for a while. I would get up, I would go into the campus bake shop at like three in the morning, get off around seven or 8 a.m., go to my classes till about 5 p.m., get my homework done in like two or three hours, 
go to sleep and then get up again. And I used to pass all my friends when I'd be getting up and going to work because they'd be coming home from parties. I was oh, just, hey, I was hey, just going to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're basically living the exact opposite of, of what we think of as like the quintessential college experience. Yeah, it was pretty nuts. I mean, I still snuck some fun in here and there. And it was good training on how to work like an impossible schedule because baking hours don't get better. (laughs) People are always going to want baked goods when they wake up in the morning. But it was it was kind of a trip, but it was really fun, really good experience too. working in a college bakery because you're just producing massive amounts of product. And uh, it teaches you a lot about efficiency of production and uh, about like just production schedules in general and just the whole different side of things. Um, And then from there, I got a job as a lion cook, which was also very handy because I was like, well, maybe I want to get into the savory world. And I spent about a year doing that and was like, nope, I want to be a baker. (laughs) That's guaranteed. Uh, And then I graduated from college. And so I was able to go to culinary school for a really short eight month certificate program, which was fantastic. I went to the CIA at Greystone. It was short, sweet, and to the point, it was super beneficial. I met some really great people there. The instructors were incredible. And uh, after I graduated, I was like, all right, here we go. (laughs) I'm going to go off and and be a baker now. Um, And I think something that most people don't realize is you don't graduate from culinary school and become a pastry chef. You graduate from culinary school and you're at the bottom of the ladder. And even though by the time I graduated from culinary school, I had about seven or eight years of kitchen experience, I was still bottom of the ladder. <laughs> like, oh, cool. You want to come work here? You can be a baker. You can't be the lead baker. You can't be the pastry chef. Certainly can't be a manager, but you can wake up at four in the morning and you can make muffins. <laughs> so and that was great. You know, that was all I was expecting. So um, spent a few years doing that. And then I got a phone call from a friend from culinary school named Nayang Ma. She was getting ready to start a bakery in Los Angeles called Proof. She asked if I wanted to come out and help. And I said, absolutely. So the sight unseen, I moved out to LA, which was a big learning curve because I'd never lived in a city at that point. (laughs) And I'd never driven on a freeway with more than four lanes. (laughs) And I'd certainly never been stuck in that much traffic. Um, LA, we'll fix that real quick. Yeah, it was a it was a sharp learning curve, but it took it took a while. But I really began to love it there, uh, and we started Proof Bakery in 2010. Uh, it's still going strong today. It's an amazing bakery, uh, and that's where I really got a good education in making croissants as well, because that was kind of our specialty. Um, so yeah, and Young and I started Proof together, and built it up to be like small batch, artisan, hands on. You know, it was really important to us that everything was baked on site and was served fresh to the customer. And that definitely is a value I've held on to through today. Like, I still think that's one of the quintessential, most important things about a small bakery. It better smell like a bakery. And I just want to hand a hot, fresh croissant to every single person because it's life-changing. Do do you think that that because your friend, you know, reached out to you specifically that you were able to sort of uh, leapfrog ahead a little bit in terms of your your experience and your, like your your ability to get some managerial experience and maybe kind of jump to the to the front of the line in terms of like being kind of a a lead baker. I think so. By the time she called me, I had worked my way up to being a lead baker in other places. But I mean, having the experience of being like the co pilot of opening a bakery without having the financial strain or the you know having the final 
responsibility of it was really incredible. Um, and, and yeah, and just getting to work that closely with a good friend to help create her vision was really amazing too. Like I was 24 and I was starting a business, but I didn't have to like pay for any of the consequences if it didn't work out. Like that's, that's priceless, you know, that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what, what a wonderful experience. So yeah. fast forwarding to 20, what, 16, 17, what, 18, when did, when did Wayfair finally, finally get opened? Uh, so, well, after proof, I went to Tartine for five years and then I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to start my own place, but where am I going to start it? And I was like, well, I, you know what? I had it, let's see, I had it honed down. I wanted to be by the beach because I wanted a bakery by the beach because um, I still like the ocean. And uh, I was honing it down from Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara or San Diego. And I just had a hunch about San Diego. I was like, it's got, it's got that border with Mexico. It's got a lot of interesting cultural influence. It's a beautiful place to live. It's got all these tropical fruits that I never get to work with. And uh, so, yeah, I moved down there uh, 2017 in May of 2017. Um, in July of 2017, I started doing pop-ups in local coffee shops and looking for location the whole time. And then, oh gosh, what was it? March of 2018, I officially signed the lease at our Bird Rock location because um, I finally found a spot. And and then we opened our doors May of 2018. Yeah. Um, so 2018, so or March of 2018, you signed that lease. And so that basically mm -hmm. means that you had almost exactly two years before COVID. So as we kind of wrap up this, the, the pre-COVID set here, let's just talk mm -hmm. a little bit about kind of your experience, you know, hiring in a community that you, you know, it's not like you've been here for for 20 years. So you're basically looking to hire people without necessarily having had roots in that community. What, what was that like? I will say this, doing the pop-ups for almost a year and the pop-ups were just, I would make pastries in a commercial kitchen at night. Uh, and then I would go to one of three coffee shops, one in Encinitas, one in East Village and one in Ocean Beach. And I would stand there and sell the pastries once a week at each location. And doing that for almost a year was for me just like a compromise. I was like, well, I can't find a location, so I'll start this way. But it actually turned out to be really instrumental in my successful opening as a brick and mortar because word got out about what I was doing and people started coming out of the woodwork who had a lot of experience and were really excited about what I was working on and wanted to be a part of it. So by the time I signed my lease, I had three incredible candidates for work who all had a decade of experience and one of whom even used to own her own bakery and was looking for a bakery to work at that she didn't have to run the show at, but she came with like an immense amount of knowledge that was so important. So that opening crew, like I can't, I can't express it enough. Like, and I wouldn't have found them. I don't think if I hadn't have done the pop-ups for a year, but they all came to me. They all asked if I was hiring and I had them all lined up by the time I opened. And that was like, that saved me. That saved me from drowning. 100%. Wow. Like, yeah. Cause I mean, yeah. you know, bakers, like, like I, I said earlier, bakers are, are already known for being really hard workers and working mm -hmm. super crazy hours. I mean, you know, the fact that you were in college going to work at 3 a.m. is <laughs> is truly mind-blowing. And then on top of that, not only are you, 
are you one of the bakers there, but you're also in charge of the the back office. You're the front office. You're the you're the lead baker. You're 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 everything. What kind of hours were you working? Very 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 long ones. Very unsustainable and practical ones. But yeah, I would. Uh, uh, for the first year, I lived on site. There was an apartment in the back, so I would be at work from about four in the morning until. 10, 11, sometimes midnight at night, just trying to get everything done. I go to bed and wake up again at four in the morning. My morning bakers would do their best. They'd try to like, let me sleep in till five, maybe five 30, which was really sweet of them. Vacation time. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was just, I was, I mean, the thing is, is when you, when you start a business and you have mostly just experienced like people who are really good bakers want to start bakeries. But then you get thrown in the deep end and you're like, well, the only tools and coping mechanisms I know to use are to just put your head down and work, just work really hard, try to get faster, try to get better. And, you know, it didn't occur to me to like, I don't know, bring in more management or take myself out of the kitchen and run things from above. It was just like, nope, that when you're in this, when you're in the weeds in the kitchen, you just put your head down and you work harder. <laughs> and that's what I did. I just worked harder and harder until I was like, this is impossible. I have to make some changes or I'm going to die. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and, and I feel like even, even though you might know that from a, a, an intellectual standpoint, it's still really difficult a to let go of sort of a little bit of creative control. And then also when you're in, especially the first year in business in a, when you're dealing with high, high rent overhead in, I mean, bird rock is not the cheapest place in the world. And for people who are unfamiliar with Bird Rock, that's like the understatement of the century. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's not like you can, in your first year in business, running uh, you know a, a relatively like uh, high overhead, lower margin, business or low low ticket item business that you can just go, oh, you know what? I could use a little more sleep. I'm just going to go hire three more people because I I have an extra two hundred grand lying around. <laughs> exactly, that is definitely a big part of it because you open. I mean, most, I think most businesses open, they recommend that you have six months working capital in the bank, just in case you don't profit for six months, which is very probable. Um, and I think I opened, I had very little cash in the bank. And then I had like a $29,000 line of credit just in case, which would have gotten us through maybe a month and a half max, but probably not at that point. So it really was like, well, we just got to make money. That's all we got to do. Uh, whatever it takes. If I can work for people's jobs, then that will save us money. I really didn't pay myself very much that first year because I was like, let's just put it towards a business, you know, and that's small business owner. You just do that. Yep. yep. But then, yeah, you definitely hit a point at some point where you start to burn out. And then if you catch it early, I think it's good. But if you catch it late because you're a small business owner and you're like, I'm just going to keep working, then you're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like Now I'm in a pickle because I'm exhausted, kind of don't care as much right now, really burnt out. But I still need to run this business and I still need to be there all day, every day. But now I don't want to be anymore. <laughs> and that's when that's when the hard, that's hard when, part when trouble in. arises, right? Yeah. yeah. And you gotta, gotta push through that because otherwise all that hard work is for not as we sort of look to wrap up the, the pre COVID set. I, I have, I have two questions left. Okay. Uh, one, what were your expectations for 2020 at, as of the, the end of 2019, looking back, if you can, because I know it seems like an eternity ago, 
but what were your expectations heading into 2020 from a from a headcount standpoint, from a financial standpoint, revenue goals or growth goals, if you prefer to share that. Uh, basically, just put yourself in that that mindset of late 2019. Things are going good. You're heading into your third year. What are you looking forward to? Yeah, um, it was definitely an, based on when we opened. It, it's been an interesting roller coaster. Anyways, like we opened halfway through 2018 with no expectations. Cause I'm not a professional business person. I was like, let's just open and hope that we make it. And 2018, we were overwhelmed and spent the year trying to meet our demand, which is a wonderful problem to have. <clears throat> 2019, uh, things were, oh, my goal for 2019 was to get things more organized and under control, uh, which hit a bit speed bump in March because I lost my mother and that put everything in a tailspin for a few months. Um, but at the same time, we were still trying to build the business and make it more stable and have, you know, standard operating procedures in place and delegate more and make it more manageable for everybody involved. And it was a very good year for us. Like our sales were much higher than the second half of 2018. We were really starting to get organized. And so for 2020, I was like, okay, you know, kind of mentally more focused on the business again. I've got a really strong crew. We, me and my kitchen manager sat down at the beginning of 2020 and discussed what we were hoping for the year. And we're like, okay, we can, um, you know, we're just going to get more organized. I think we could increase sales maybe by like 10%, maybe 15% if we were real careful and we'll just tighten up the ship and work on increased revenue. That was just, I mean, we, again, I'm not super business oriented. So it wasn't like, we're going to cut down on our expenses by 15% and increase profitability by 32.5%. You know, I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a little more fluid than that. But generally speaking, I was looking forward to having a lot more work-life balance and making a way for my bakery to be sustainable for me and for my staff, because the first half year was insanity. The, the first full year was obviously full of obstacles and unexpected hurdles, but also full of immense growth. So I was like, okay, let's make this fun for us. Like, and actually the first goal I had of 2020 was I had, I booked my very first vacation from work, like actual vacation. I flew to Australia from February 20th until March 7th. <laughs> I got back on the 7th and we were closed by the 15th. And that was- wow. That was insane. <laughs> like the well, timing of it all was, I mean, if I'd left a week later and come back a week later, I, I hate to imagine how, how much worse that could have gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you were back there. And, and that's a, that's a perfect segue to head into our mid COVID set. So that means I'm actually going to save my last question and I'm going to <laughs> save it for the next set. And before we move on to our mid COVID set, as always, it's time for our guests unsponsor, AKA <laughs> a small business who's doing awesome work run by awesome people. They don't know they're getting a shout out, but they deserve one. So Crystal, tell us who is today's show not brought to us by? <laughs> today's show is not brought to us by Crossings Coffee, which is a very new, very exciting coffee roastery, uh, which is started by my former front of house manager, Alden Hazori. And he is uh, just getting his start. He started the brand, I think five years ago, but then took a hiatus to work for a couple other people, including myself. And uh, he 
left a couple months ago to really focus on his new project. And I'm super excited for him. And we can find Crossings Coffee at crossingscoffee.com. You can order online. They have espresso, they have filter drip, they have uh, a couple of different options here for you. And it all looks amazing. And I also just love their their front picture, the the banner image on their website, which is this, it's a coffee cup sitting there, but it looks like the coffee is sort of like exploding out of it. And I am so curious as to how they made that picture happen. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Uh, time to move on to our mid-COVID set. Uh, if you want coffee for that set, order it at crossingscoffee.com. <laughs> Okay, mid-COVID. So you came home March 7th from Australia. Mm -hmm. What was the first effect that you felt from COVID? Well, going to Australia was actually a blessing in disguise because it hit Australia a little bit sooner than it hit the U.S. And there were already a lot of murmurs going on. And I, I was very aware that the situation was growing steadily worse and that it wasn't going to be like previous viruses from China that we heard about, but didn't really cause that big of a problem here. Right. Um, Pro things you know, that were things that were them problems, not us problems. Exactly. You, so know, you saw them on like, TV and never really made it here. Yeah. And, and I saw that Australia was starting to take it seriously. Um, we actually, I flew back to Hawaii in between because I was traveling with a friend from Hawaii and it kind of broke up the flight and stayed in Hawaii for a few days. And while I was there, I think like things really started to accelerate and I was like, okay, this is interesting. They just canceled some pretty big events that were lined up for Hawaii, like, huh. And then flew back to California and had immediately sat down, had a meeting with my front and back of house managers and was like, I think a little concerned. I think this might become a thing. I think we need to start writing up a few contingency plans because, you know, if, if it does go the way that it's gone in other countries, which this would have been like March 8th or 9th. So things were really starting to pick up speed and like Italy and France, you know, I was like, if, if you know, my friends who have bakeries in France are, are starting to like close, I think it's not out of the realm of possibility that we close. So let's, you know, let's set some expectations. Like, what do we do if we have to only do takeout service? What do we do if we have to close? Why would we close? Um, and then, I mean, as everybody listening to this podcast knows, it, things just fell like dominoes after that. Like my, both my managers were kind of like, I don't know, it doesn't seem very likely, but you know, yeah, let's talk about it. And, and I can't blame them. It seemed really like having not been in America for the last two weeks, I definitely, like I said, I credit having a little bit of a heads up, but I couldn't predict what was about to happen. Of course. So yeah, we went from, I, I'll never forget the weekend before. That was, uh, I think the 13th and the 14th of March. Uh, we used to have our line go inside the bakery. And I remember people were starting to get a little bit nervous and people were starting to kind of not want to be in crowds. But there was also this other wave that was coming through that was people getting nervous and wanting to stock up. And so we were looking out at the line and the line went all the way back to the bathrooms and then it doubled back on itself and went back out the front door. And so we're talking like probably 60, 70 people inside the building packed shoulder to shoulder, all waiting, desperate to get bread, desperate to get pastries. We're selling out so fast. We're 
just, I'm calling into the kitchen. I don't care. Just make whatever, just get more product out there. We like, we have more people in line than we can serve right now. I think at one point we started limiting the number of items people could buy because they were just panic buying. I'll take 10 loaves of bread, you know? And, and that was like a big indicator on one hand where it was like, Oh, dang, something's happening. But I also remember just looking out there with this like sick feeling in my stomach, like, ah, I feel like this is, this is not going to be a good look in a couple of days, like having this many people this close together. And like that night, that Sunday night, um, I forget even what the news was saying, but it was basically like, we're all heading into a shutdown. Businesses need to stop operating. And and we still, as a takeout business, we still had the ability to be open, but, you know, it's not just about what we legally can do. It has a lot to do with what our employees feel comfortable doing. And at that point, everyone was terrified. So uh, we made an executive decision a Sunday night. It was like, okay, even though we're still cranking, we could still operate a very profitable business right now. Like everyone's terrified. So me, my front of house kitchen manager and my back of house kitchen manager, both all three of us agreed to keep working. And then we had like a staff meeting over the phone, basically checked in with everyone individually and then made the decision to lay everybody off um, and get on unemployment. And then us three tried to keep it going. We did two pre-order pickups per week and we lasted two weeks and it was so complicated, like trying to manage that many people in crowd control, everyone was so afraid people were angry people were upset some people were very grateful that we're open but a lot of people were like this is irresponsible you're like letting people stand in line at a time like this you're going to kill people and you know there was heavy rains that week too and we didn't have a covered patio so we're like sitting out there in the pouring rain like it was back to the old days I was up for like 16 20 hours straight like sitting out there trying to hand out boxes of pastries in the safest way we could based on our very sudden abrupt change. And, um, and I was like, this isn't helping anybody. People are upset. People aren't, they don't know how to do this safely. We don't have the infrastructure to build like preset time pickups. Like we're not that organized. This isn't what we do. And yeah. And it was just a mess. And so we, we finally just decided like, let's just close. Like it just seems easier right now to close get a better grip on the situation and then find a way to reopen when everyone feels safe and okay to do that. Of course, the minute I closed, got a slurry of emails and text messages and phone calls. You're, you have a responsibility to feed the community right now. How can you just let us all like there's just really, starve basically? There's <laughs> like, just, there's just no winning. There's no, and I'm, I can't even be mad at it in hindsight because like everyone was just so, this is unprecedented, you know, like everybody was just in a panic and nobody quite knew how to deal with it. And it was like a giant experiment in the different ways that people deal with immense stress and threat to their lives, like yeah. all at once, you know, everyone's just doing the best that they can. And that's, yeah. that ends up manifesting in different ways, which I'm not saying it, uh, it justifies taking out that frustration on your on your local baker, but no. I guess it 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 explains it uh, uh, at least a little bit. I guess exactly. Which, <laughs> which and uh, it, we're sort of addressing it right now. But that was w- my last question that I didn't get to in the, in the last segment, which was, okay. what is it like working and and being sort of a you know, Bird Rock is a small town. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's, there's one, there's one main road that, you know, Bird Rock Ave, 
and and that's that's pretty much it, right? La Jolla Boulevard, like that is yep. that is the the only street. There's not that many shops. It's tough to survive there under normal circumstances, much less in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- and you, not only are you living in the community, you're living literally in the building. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So your world is like, you know, centered around, you know, 700 square feet or, or you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, what was it like? I guess you can address this before, during COVID, just to be in that community, working in the community that you live in and where you're making all of those connections. Like, what is what is that like? There is no turning off that business. It's true. You know, it's... um. It was very important to me when I was searching for a location to be on a main drag in a small community because I, I really believe strongly that one of the best things about a bakery is, is a center for community. And not to veer too off the subject, but like at a time when everyone is so split in their differences and the room for nuance seems to be like pinhead small. I think community is more important than ever, like places that people can gather and meet people who don't exactly think or talk like them and have the opportunity to gain a little bit of perspective. So I always try to keep that in mind when I'm frustrated by the, you know, the accessibility of the community <laughs> in my personal life, <laughs> just because I remember that like overall that is, I, that was an intentional move, you know, I could open in a strip mall somewhere and not have to deal with the proximity to customers and the proximity to the community in general. But, uh, but for the most part, I really enjoy having that. Um, it does get a little bit complicated because, you know, you're like, Oh, I'm really stressed out. I'm going to go down the street and get a martini at the bar and just like space out. And like, chances are I'll run into an employee or a fellow business owner or three customers who all want to talk. And that's wonderful most of the time. And sometimes it's not, but luckily there's a lot of other, neighborhoods you can go to if you're looking for a little bit of privacy. But during COVID, um, I would say it, it hasn't changed that much community wise. Like the, I mean, if anything, everybody's spending more time in their prospective neighborhoods and not leaving Mm -hmm. to go to other neighborhoods. And so I'd say I've probably gotten to know, uh, some of my customers much better. And certainly I've gotten to know my own neighborhood a lot better, just being hyper-focused on it and not leaving it. And it's kind of given me an even greater appreciation for it, like learning a little bit more about the history. Like obviously our neighborhood has a very strong history and like surfing culture and just learning like all the, all the, the, the pride and the, you know, I don't know, I don't even know how to put it into words, but just, I, I don't know, really understanding the soul of a neighborhood has been really great. And it's given me a greater appreciation for being in the neighborhood I'm in. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, and I love the 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 term "soul of the neighborhood" because I feel like y- you are now a part of the the soul of the neighborhood. <laughs> Way, Wayfair is certainly you know part of the the fabric of of what makes up a, a bird rock. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes, trying to deal with both sides of hey, you should be open no matter what because it's your your civic duty, it's your obligation, and then also you know accusations of like. You're a, you're a murderer because you're creating a place for people to congregate and yeah. you know, that's your responsibility. And, you know, even social, like the term social distancing didn't exist at that point in time or was just starting to come out. And if you'd said, hey, guys, social distance, people would be like, what are you talking about? Oh, even just the presence of masks was not common 
at all back then. Like yeah. it's, I think in hindsight, you know, I always think, oh yeah, you know, March 15th, everything shut down and everyone started wearing masks, but it's like, no, it wasn't like that at all. I don't think people wearing masks became a common thing until like late April from what I recall, just because mm -hmm. it was, it was slow information to unfold. We didn't know a whole lot about it. Like it was just, everything came to a huge roaring stop and it was like, Oh God, okay, we're closed. And it was, it was, I mean, obviously super scary to just close and not know when you're going to reopen. And I remember, you know, feeling fairly cavalier about it. Like I have definite control issues as a small business owner, but I also like, it's kind of a joy to let go too. And I'm like, okay, we're going to close. I told all my employees, like we, we did our best. We paid out all the sick pay we could. I tried to come up with some severance. And then I was like, we don't know when we're reopening that we have a good chance of reopening because we have some money in savings, but you know, we don't know if there's government aid coming. We don't know if there's anything coming. So, you know, it was, and this was, was early April. Like, this was, um, this was March 17th, 18th. I think we laid everybody off and it was, it was really weird. It was like, we, I had everyone come in individually to get their checks and they all kind of gathered on the patio to say goodbye. And it was like, okay, well, I hope I see you guys again. Like I'm going to miss you. And like, I'll do my very best, you know, to reopen yeah. and to bring everyone back. But I obviously can't promise, promise anything, anything right now. And it was, I mean, it was terrifying, but it was also liberating too. Cause it was like, well, there's no control over any of this. We're just going to close and we're going to see what happens. And you know what? Like if I have to spend all my money and then we just never reopen, like, I guess that's just the way it is. Like, I'm not saying at all that I would have maintained that level of calm and like, just whatever, whatever may come, may come. But in that moment, it was just like all doors were closed in every direction. And it's like, okay, here we go. Like there's no, there's no way to even really fight right now. Just like, let's lay low and please be safe. And I hope I see you on the other side. Yeah. And, um, it's almost like when the tornado is 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 imminent and yeah. you're you're well provisioned and you're you know you're underground you're like well I guess this is this is where I'm going to hunker for a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh you know for my own all all I could do personally because I could have gone in and worked every single day and made bread and like handed it out but it was like that's not practical either like I can't kill myself over this and also this is a unique opportunity after the crazy you know nearly two years that we'd had at that point to like take a break and like let things rest and kind of come up with a new plan. So I went in twice a week during that time and I made 180 loaves of bread and I would distribute them to two locations, um, the fishery right down the street, that restaurant, they had a fish counter that was open and they would sell our bread. And then I would send the other half to Chino farms up in Rancho Santa Fe who are longtime friends and they were keeping their farm stand open. So I was still able to produce bread and send it out just to give people an option because while I don't agree that I was killing people and I don't agree that I had an obligation to feed the community during a time of need, I do think that there's a seed of truth to both of those things. And as a business owner, it's like, okay, well, like they they have a right to be upset because I, don't have the ability to do crowd control right now. So how do I reopen in a responsible way where you can do crowd control and where you can create a safe space for your customers to buy your product? That is the responsibility of the business owner. And also, yes, I would like to provide bread during a time when there is no bread anywhere and we have the ability to 
provide that. That's not only smart business, it's also like, well, you know, at a time of crisis, like, how do you provide for your community, you know, if you have the ability? So that was kind of my answer to short-term solution to both of those complaints. Like, here's the bread. I'm sending it to places that have a better capability for crowd control than I do, because I don't have that option right now. And and it worked out for the most part. And it also kept me sane because I had something to do twice a week that would yeah. give me direction and keep my skills sharp and keep the bakery equipment in use because uh, most kitchen people know if you turn off a machine for too long, there's no guarantee it'll turn back on. So, so how yeah. long were you were you closed and what was behind the decision and the timing to reopen when you did? Uh, so... We were closed until March 16th. So we closed from, or sorry, we, uh, May 16th. So we were closed from um, March 16th until May 16th, um, which was ironic. We ended up reopening on what would have been our two year anniversary. <laughs> it felt very like another reopening. Deja vu. Yeah. Like, wow, okay. <laughs> um, and we decided to reopen because I'd been in close contact with all of my employees while we were closed kind of checking in. And um, I basically said, you know, I, I, I would like to reopen on this date. Um, but I won't reopen until we have enough people who feel comfortable enough to come back. You know, and so I talked to we t between me and my kitchen manager, we talked to everybody individually and um, kind of assessed out the situation. And uh, we had about half our staff that felt comfortable coming back at that point. Uh, and based on the staff we had, and also being able to socially distance in a kitchen that's pretty small, that was another concern to us. Like, how do we keep things totally separate? How do we work as safely as possible? And we had, man, we really, we streamlined it to a T. It was cut from a strategist perspective. It was really exciting to sit down in a quiet room and just break down every part of the business and figure out exactly how we could reopen with all these parameters. Like, if we change our entire production schedule around, then we have only three people in the main kitchen at once and one person in the croissant room at once, which means that everybody could feasibly have six feet of space around them. And then if we add, we were doing one pizza night a week before we closed, but I was like, okay, well, if we add two more pizza nights, we can create more shifts for the people that wanna work. We can create a different revenue stream but they only use the kitchen at night. So then we have more shifts we can give to people while still socially distancing. And it was, it was really exciting in a way to get to start from zero and get to completely revisualize the business with the knowledge that I had of what worked and what didn't in the past and, and kind of create the same business, but super lean and super efficient and super safe. Like we had walkie talkies. So the front of house had a walkie talkie, the kitchen had a walkie talkie and our back office had a walkie talkie so that nobody had to go into anybody else's space. And like, it was, it was kind of, I mean, it was exciting. It was a, stressful to reopen for sure because we had all these new systems in place, but it was, it was kind of fun too, just to rework the existing systems and make them better and make the business itself stronger and more impervious to unexpected obstacles. And uh, so we operated like that um, with about half of our staff uh, from March until I'd say around July or August. Um, from May until July or August? Sorry, yeah, May. <laughs> May from May until July or August. 
And, uh, and then slowly we collected uh, the rest of our staff that wanted to come back in that time. Um, and then, yeah, uh, we made it all the way until mid-December. And there were a couple, I mean, we had that number spike around August, September that made everyone nervous, um, but we still stayed open. And that was and the, then, the, the post-Thanksgiving uh, spike in, in numbers, in, especially in San Diego. Uh, no, in August, I think that was, or August, September, I'm not sure what caused that spike. Maybe it was July 4th or summer activities in general, but I remember July 4th, a lot of people were closing the beaches nearby and the numbers were kind of high again. Oh, okay. Um, I, th I thought you were talking about uh, your closure in mid-December. Oh yeah, no, Th mid-December, yeah. It was the Thanksgiving. Exactly, yeah. And they kind of just continued on through December. Um, but before you get to that, I do yeah. just want to say I I admire how you basically weighed the the input or the even the, the unspoken input but the um the effects on the kind of all stakeholders like so you know you as the business owner and then your employees and your customers and kind of try to do what was best for everyone taking into account public health the uh you know the, the public health of, of of the broader community of your customers specifically of your staff from a public health standpoint which you know obviously ties into their economic well-being as well and so kind of doing what you could to create more shifts in a way that was outside of the uh, the standard practices pre-covid of wayfair bread to fully adapt i think is super commendable and and i i kind of <laughs> have been watching it from the outside but i, I love exploring kind of the intentionality behind all of that so, Thanks. So, sorry to interrupt <laughs> your, yeah. your timeline. We can go back to to, to mid December again, where again the, the roller coaster takes a, a different direction. Yeah. Well, like quick side note on that, I do want to say like we we're very lucky in a couple factors that made it possible for us to make those changes, and I kind of want to say that because not every restaurant has the ability to do these things. Like we have a very lenient landlord who's very supportive of us making these changes to the building. We have the type of business that does well during the pandemic, which is a bakery. People are used to taking baked items to go. So we did still have the demand and the profit to be able to make these changes. You know, I'd, I just want to put that in there real quick because um, we had a lot going yeah. for us that made it possible to make these changes. Yes, uh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There are definitely businesses that are able to kind of make those pivots and it's easier than others. And even, you know, within the broader restaurant industry at large, like you think about your, I think your, your higher end restaurants are probably having some of the toughest times because you can't have people come sit for an hour and a half and no one wants to take their four course meal to go and spend a hundred and something dollars a head like that. That's just not a, not a feasible Absolutely. thing. Well, and that's, yeah, it's been devastating to see that side of it and yeah. to be, have a business that's doing pretty well in the pandemic while some of my closest friends are struggling so much and realize that there's not, there's not a rhyme or reason to it. Like mm -hmm. there's, it's like musical chairs, whatever business you wound up with at the start of the pandemic, like, you either have a lot of room to pivot or very little room to pivot. And I think some people judging other places based on certain industry success is completely unwarranted because there's just no, not everybody has wiggle room and it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. I also like the visual of what you're saying about bread lines. Cause oh, that gosh. just seems like 
yeah that that throws me back to you know uh to to world history classes in high school and seeing you know bread lines like that's reminiscent of of like soviet russia or or post world war 1 germany like you know bread lines down the street oh yeah no that comparison has been made a lot lately and i'm like it is startling how quickly we got there you know like as a country and it's a good reminder that we should not take for granted what we have you know yeah. Yeah. but anyway back to the timeline back, back to december yeah. yes go on december was interesting december like things were beginning to obviously ramp up the post thanksgiving spike in numbers was troubling the expectation of the spike in numbers due to holiday travel was looming ahead we started to see a lot of the same signs that we did the first time uh, i didn't think the entire country was going to shut down again but i did notice that you know the restaurants were being closed again for outdoor dining that it it just seemed like things were closing in a lot closer than they had before it wasn't that someone we knew knew somebody that had gotten covid it was people at work spouses coworkers you know like people that they worked with daily and so spouses were having to get tested and like people's roommates were getting sick and like it was just getting much, much closer. And with a business our size, according to CDC guidelines, based on the social distancing we can provide within the building, uh, if one person on staff gets COVID, then we need to close for a week. And we need to make sure everybody waits five days, gets tested, and then anybody with a negative test result can return to work. But anybody with a positive test result needs to quarantine for two weeks. So those are as I mean, this is why so many restaurants have to close for a week. Like that is a really hard way to run a business on a regular basis to begin with, because with food businesses, you're constantly investing in ingredients and you would have to throw all those ingredients out if they couldn't be used for a week, you know? So it's already a risk on a daily basis that you have no control over. You can ask your staff to be safe and make good decisions, but obviously with this highly contagious disease and a new variant strain coming through that's supposed to be seven times more contagious. It's, it, it's already dicey, but when you're coming up to the holiday season as a bakery, people want to put in pre-orders. They want like 200, 300 pre-orders that all want to be picked up the day before Christmas or the day before that. It was probable that someone would get sick in that time and that we would have to cancel all of those pre-orders last minute. It just didn't seem like the odds were in our favor. And <laughs> On top of that, uh, we had quite a few staff members that were getting nervous again. They either live with immunocompromised people, their parents are immunocompromised and they wouldn't be able to see them for Christmas or, or they themselves are immunocompromised. And something I've tried to make clear, which is a hard concept, I think, for people working in America is that like you should, if possible, you should not have to choose between your safety and your job. And us being in the position that we were, where we had some flexibility to close, when my a couple of people on staff kind of started sounding the alarm that they were nervous, we held a staff meeting and I kind of said, like, look, we have options. We're lucky we have options. If half our staff doesn't want to work, then this is how we're going to operate. If three quarters of our staff doesn't work, then this is how we'll operate. Like, we'll still be able to provide work for the people who want it, but anybody who doesn't want to work, I can furlough you. You'll keep your health benefits, but you'll be um, you know, on unemployment until you return. And 
we took a vote the week, uh, I think our first vote was December 4th and we had like five or six of our like 18 person staff decide to stay home after that. And then uh, we watched the numbers go up for another week. And then we had a second staff meeting a week later and I kind of laid out like, okay, here's the situation. I talked about Christmas too. I was like, I just don't, I'm not confident. I don't think we would take pre-orders at all given the fact that I couldn't guarantee that we could provide them. Um, but I would also be worried about the crowd control. Like if you don't take pre-orders, you have that many people waiting in line that want to purchase the day before Christmas. And that also at a time like this kind of feels irresponsible. And again, if I don't have a way to control that, is it responsible to stay open if we have the option to close? And so based on that conversation, and I think also based on the fact that we had a firm reopening date and everyone was guaranteed their jobs back, um, we decided to close then as well. So we just fully shut down December 13th with a firm reopening date of January 13th. And it was a scary decision because uh, Christmas is our biggest holiday and we make a lot of money during Christmas and it usually gets us through the slow months of January, February, March, but it was one that we could financially risk taking. And I think, um, I think in hindsight that that was definitely the best decision for us not necessarily the best decision for anybody else. I had a lot of people say, why would you close if you could stay open, especially from other restaurant owners that didn't have the option to be open. And I kind of told them, you know, it's, it's, it's a really hard thing to explain, but at times like this, everybody's business is different. The needs of everybody's business are different and importantly as well, like the needs of everyone's employees are different. And if my employees don't want to work and I, I certainly can't make them, but I don't want them to have to work if it feels unsafe to work. And also we have the option to close. It just feels selfish to stay open on that front. And boy, did we get some angry emails from our customers at that point. <laughs> we had people that said it was very selfish of us to close. And did I take a poll of my customers' needs before my employees? And I'm like, that's, that's fine. That's your opinion. But I'm confident in our decision and in hindsight now that we're through it it was the best decision and it feels a lot better in the kitchen right now everybody feels fairly safe our customers all came back luckily because that was another fear are we going to close and no one's going to come again like <laughs> but for the most part every all, our a lot of our customers um seem to appreciate what we we're doing as well and um yeah and so that's that's where we're at now we reopened two weeks ago uh, gave us another chance to kind of um, build in a bit more of a pivot, uh, which was ordering a, or creating another window in our building, which is a pre-order pickup window. Because one thing I was receiving a lot of feedback on was like, our line is very long a lot of the time. And some people don't feel comfortable waiting in that line. Uh, so we created a pre-order system on our website where you can schedule a pre-order pickup because we finally are figuring out the technology to keep up with our needs as a small business during a pandemic. Um, and, and so now people can order pre-order and then pick up at a certain time and avoid the line. So that was a good outcome from closing for a month too, just being able to do the construction and set up the technology to accommodate that. So yeah, we're slowly... Yeah figuring it out with the assumption that hopefully this pandemic will get better with time, but prepared for the fact that it may take quite a long time for things to get back to 
any semblance of normal and and basically building our business to grow within the pandemic model as opposed to waiting for it to end. And that's that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> well, again, I, I I tip my hat to you for making that decision where it, it's not one where, you know, a big business decides to do something and it's obviously like a thinly veiled way of removing a bunch of, you know, staff who uh, who want to keep working and and do so in a way that's like all about the bottom line. Again, you kind of measured the inputs of all of the various stakeholders. And I think that you weighted things, not that, you know, my opinion, you, you don't need obviously <laughs> need validation here, but it, it, I, I think that your position as like the business owners is first like your business and your staff and then obviously you want to service your customers but mm -hmm. you know you, it's not like you were doing things out of greed you were doing things to like for the the health and safety of your of your staff who you know in a small business like they're also friends probably for the most part oh, and yeah. so you know and and like you said you were sacrificing your biggest month of the year probably mm -hmm. <laughs> oh so, and some of my baker friends were like you're crazy it's I'm not like, like it's an know, easy decision yeah <laughs> yeah honestly the, the key to all of this is like i there was a time when i did do all the baking myself but i was only able to bake a small percentage of what we do now like without my staff on board with our business like we wouldn't have a business so it's very important to take their needs in, into consideration before any decisions are made because they're, they're a huge reason of why the bakery exists and why it will continue to exist and why I have my mental sanity. And, you know, like, yeah, yeah. So as we move to our, you know, our, our wrap things up and move into our, our post COVID set, mm -hmm. post COVID meaning essentially kind of what do you see moving forward? What lessons have you learned? Let's go ahead and touch on those a little bit and kind of what do you expect to see in these coming months? I think that you can sort of make decisions to close down or, or maybe you would have made the same decision either way. But as I'm looking at things, the light is maybe not the light isn't at the end of the tunnel yet, but like, you know, we're in that we're in that pre-dawn space mm -hmm. where the where, mm -hmm. where immunizations are rolled out and like first light hasn't happened yet. We can't actually see the sun, but we know that something's coming soon. And like the, the end is near. So it would seem kind of foolish to take those risks, like to do everything that we've done to survive thus far only to take risks now. So I, I, there's no question there. That's just how, I, how I, I'm sort of feeling and, and, and viewing the world. So moving forward into, you know, into these next kind of six months I don't know. I always feel silly putting a timeline on when the end, quote unquote, end know, of COVID will be, sounds, right? Because for so long, it was, we yeah. just keep kicking the can down the road. It was like everyone, uh -huh. uh, one month, three months. Now it's like six months, nine months. I don't know from today. But moving forward, do you feel like, are, are there ways, are there lessons learned and, and things, strategies that you have implemented, pivots that will li live beyond COVID? Oh, for sure. My gosh, I'm, I will never say I'm grateful for COVID, but I will say that it has taught me a lot and it's helped me grow as a business owner quite a bit in ways that I don't think would have happened without such an extreme situation. Um, so one of the biggest changes is, um, you know, it forced me to delegate big time. 
Like I had to delegate out a lot of my responsibilities so that I could actually run operations because operations became vital. It wasn't just a, oh yeah, I'll figure that out later. It was like, okay, I need to be available to figure this out now. So it's, um, and that will be permanent because I see the value in that now. Um, <laughs> I'm always a little late to the game with these business concepts, but eventually I get them. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say it's unlikely that we'll reopen our dining room um, ever, honestly. Um, I never say never, but uh, I've, I've found that um, the ease in which we can serve our customers now compared to before like we've really grown efficiently in that respect and I see no reason to bring it back. Um, I would say that the production schedules that we've built as a way to meet demand and still socially distanced have been really beneficial in more ways than just being able to socially distance. Uh, they are built more with scaling up in mind. So uh, it's, it's much better place to be from a growth standpoint. Um, so we'll definitely keep those in place. And then I'm trying to think what else I think, I think honestly too, like communication with the community, like learning to take the feedback I get and sift through it to find the real issue, as opposed to just taking it at face value and being devastated or upset. Like, I think that's been really helpful too. I think it's really helped temper my reactions and my expectations and make me like a better communicator and a better understander of the needs that abound from both customers, staff, and, and also for myself, like being more honest with myself about what, what exactly is the problem here and how do you fix it and how do you take the emotion out of it and not get upset first, but just get down to brass tacks and be like, all right, let's, let's figure this out and let's, let's make, the solution and let's not get let's not get upset first and <laughs> let's not take anything personally this is all I get it now like it's just business as they say and that's like usually a caveat for something else but but during today's world where everybody is just in such extreme situations and positions I think being able to grow into a voice of logic and reason has been really helpful not all the time I'm still working on it but like <laughs> yeah some some truths in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Being able to remove the emotion of the moment and make the decision, uh, you know, that is best for, for you and, and your stakeholders again, is something that is, you know, so much easier said than done. And, mm -hmm. and I am loving the way that, you know, th that I've heard you say you came up with options for what you would do if a quarter of the staff decided not to work or half the staff decided not to work or everybody and having those options and and laying it out so that there's no blame to go around but just to say hey here are the realities here here are our options let's now pick the best one and not being and i'm not saying that me, <laughs> there weren't moments <laughs> of this of being it seems like you were able to kind of dissociate the the what could be an absolutely uh a really heavy weight, like a, a suffocating weight of feeling overwhelmed by just all of the things that are going on in this world that we can't control. And instead focusing on the things that you can control. Exactly. And, and, and making yeah. the best decision. 
because it's so easy to be like, oh, the the president is doing this. That's crazy. Or the you know, this is happening. These are our national numbers. Here's what I'm seeing on the news. Isn't this this is insane. People are storming the Capitol. It's great. Well, we're in San Diego. We're three thousand miles away. What you know, what can you do? You have a business. You have 18 employees. You have a community that looks to you. What can you do to make you to make your local impact the, the best, the safest, the you know, maximize it? the value for again all of those stakeholders in the safest and and best most professional way well exactly (laughs) when that's the benefit honestly of being a small business you do have more room to pivot i mean you have a lot of other factors like lack of excessive funds from very wealthy investors and you know like lack of extreme federal aid apparently but um (laughs) but as a small business the good state aid is is that you have a lot more flexibility with the decisions you make. You don't have to ask 27 shareholders before you make a decision. You don't have to make a decision that will carry across all of the branches of your franchise. Like you can actually just think about the people who work there and the community you're serving and figure out what is best for the people that are directly affected by the changes you make, which is wonderful. Like, you know? Yeah. Well, as we kind of wrap things up here, let's just put a, a couple of numbers on things if we can. How mm-hmm. did 2020 end up from like a top line revenue standpoint compared to what you thought it was going to be and maybe what it was compared to 2019, the last year of normalcy? <laughs> well, I, as I mentioned, I was hoping to grow our sales by 10% in 2020. Uh, and I think our sales dropped about 20% instead. But um, because we were closed during large parts of the year, so we had very low overhead and no labor costs and no ingredient costs, um, we, we kind of evened out as far as profitability went, which was a miracle, you know? Like yeah. just being able to put into place more efficient protocols and save on labor while increasing production and you know, not have to lose too much money while we were closed. It really, we, we're definitely so lucky to say that like we, we kind of evened out and, and we're set up much better for pretty much anything in 2021. So I have high hopes for this year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's my last question is what, what are your hopes for, what what are your hopes? What are your prognostications? What do you Mm -hmm. see coming for, for 2021? I mean, I'm just going to try to reapply the goals I had for 2020, um, (laughs) which is better work-life balance, uh, which I think we're already well on our way to as a company as a whole, Um, building stronger company culture. I think because we've been through so much together as a company, there's a lot of camaraderie and a lot of like just kind of brotherhood, sisterhood in the works and just trying to maintain that and use it as a way to better the experience of working at Wayfair. Um, and then, yeah, it'd be great if we could increase our sales and profitability, but honest, and I think the the takeout window, the pre-order window will help with that. But I mean, after this past year, I think really, I'm just coming from a place of being grateful for what we do have at this point and just hoping that we can maintain the same that we've had and just do better as far as crowd control and, and customer safety and comfort goes. But hopefully that will become less of a concern as vaccines come out more. And, and I'm really hopeful that the end of this year will look a lot different than the end of last year. But 
cautiously hopeful because we just don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is the, the the operative term there is is cautiously because it, like we said earlier, we just keep kicking that that can down the road of surely things will be back to normal in yeah. three months, three months, <laughs> three months. But we've been so awesome. burned. Those, yeah. those add up. Yeah. So for our psyche, I think it's important to approach with with caution. Uh, Crystal, th thank you so much I, for, for coming on and, and, and sharing and, and kind of giving us a, a, a peek behind the curtain and, and being vulnerable and, and uh, sharing some words of wisdom. I, I really enjoyed having you on and I look forward to coming by tomorrow night to, to grab my, my loaf of sourdough because we're making, we're making soup for dinner. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was nice to get to talk this out, <laughs> kind of try to make some more sense of it. Thank you to my guest, Crystal White. Next time you're in San Diego or when COVID is over and you need an excuse to come to San Diego, Wayfarer Bread is a must visit. I speak not in exaggeration when I say it, it is truly the best sourdough I have ever had. Time now for my unsponsor, AKA a small business doing everything right. They don't pay for a shout out. Heck, they don't even know it's coming, but they still deserve one. Today's show was not brought to you by Bria Nicole. Bria Nicole is a visual artist and illustrator with a focus on modern lifestyle imagery used to create pieces that feel familiar and inspiring. Her work emphasizes the importance of self-care, self-love, and basking in the simple joys of life. Check her workout at briapaints.com, B-R-I-A paints.com. Speaking of shopping small, check out smallbizgoneviral.com for a rapidly growing list of unsponsors and the small businesses run by our guests. There are now over 100 businesses listed that you've probably never heard of, but guaranteed will be impressed by. So vote with your wallet for the world you want to live in and shop small. Thank you, Peggy Bunker and the Bookmates, for this theme song, Worldometer, NPR, Robin Hood Snack, and Morning Brew Daily News emails, Statista, and my wonderful researcher, Kaylin Kwan. Someday this will all be over. Until then, fight the fatigue, social distance, distance, and wear a mask. From an office in North Pacific Beach, recorded and edited before and after work hours, I'm Grant LeBeau, and this is Small Biz Gone Viral. And we're back, as always, with our quick bonus lightning round. Four quick questions for you here, Crystal. Number one, what is your least favorite question about your business to receive? at a, we'll say, party. And why? <laughs> uh, what is it like to be a woman-owned business? And while I don't find the question offensive, I'm frustrated by it because I would rather talk about my fermentation process or what it's like to run a business in general rather than having to put my gender as the focus on it. I feel like I miss out on getting asked questions I'd actually like to answer because of well-intentioned people starting with that one. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't ask that one. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> what, what are some common misconceptions about your business? Uh, I think uh, I think when people picture a bakery owner, they picture you know someone standing there being, "Oh, that's so cute! You just uh, stand in the kitchen and make cookies all day." And whenever they ask me that, I immediately have a flash image in my head of what my day actually looks like, which is usually running through the kitchen being like, wow, what is that? Don't do that. Oh my God. There's a question. Hang on. Let me go fix this. Oh, the sheeter's broken. The oven's on fire. You know, like, 
very different than I think most people picture. Putting out literal um, fires. Yeah, literal fires and figurative fires constantly. Uh, not nearly as glamorous or as cute as most people imagine. <laughs> what is something you feel non-small business owners don't really understand about your specific work stresses as the owner of Wayfair? I think most of my friends and family have at least four stories about me having to drop everything and run to the business um, because the business comes first. Like there, as I said in my last question, there's constant fires to be put out and all it takes is one phone call that's really important for me to have to run. Uh, and I think uh, it's, it's frustrating for me. I don't mind doing it, it's my job, uh, but I hate that feeling of letting people down because I know a lot of jobs don't entail that kind of response. And I think it can be hard on people's birthdays or on holidays for me to either not have time in general or have to leave unexpectedly. Um, but unfortunately, it's just the reality of being a small business owner. <laughs> and last question, because this is a happy show. What is your favorite part about being a small business owner? Honestly, I mean, building community, both within the kitchen and out the front door. It's really cool to see how a small business can impact the community around it and build relationships and bring joy to people. It's, it's really fun. Such a great answer. Such a great interview. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank you. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm.